If someone is having a mental health crisis and 911 is called, police officers act as the first responders. Jails have become housing units for the severely mentally ill. The system is cyclical, recidivism rates are high, and law enforcement is acting not only as judge and jury, but as caretaker. I had told the officers and the people in the jail that I needed to get to a hospital. And even though they gave medication on that floor, you know, it's not just medication that makes people feel better. It's a, it's a whole environment. And as far as the, that wasn't the place for anybody. The system is wrong for the sense that you have to get arrested first to be able to get some kind of help or some incentive to want to turn your life around. You shouldn't have to get arrested to have to try to get help for a mental health or a drug problem. This is The Pursuit, a podcast about government action and individual liberty. I'm Tess Terrible. My name is Justin Volpe, and I'm a jail diversion peer liaison, certified recovery peer specialist. Well, I was originally born in New Jersey. I came to Miami uh, when I was 19 years old, and I've lived here ever since. I had a bad drug and mental health problem. I was diagnosed at a young age, and... um, I got caught up in the system, and that's how I came across this program. I was living a very unstable life at that time, and then I ended up actually, um, I ended up being arrested in April 2007, which led me to be incarcerated on the ninth floor of the Dade County Jail, dubbed the uh, Forgotten Floor. To understand the country's mental health crisis and where we are now, we have to look back at the history of state institutions. This is Elisa Roth. She is a reporter and the author of Insane, America's Criminal Treatment of Mental Illness. We have always put people with mental illness into jail and prison. We can go back to even before we were a country and see that that jail or prisons were the the sort of default answer to our mental health crisis. Even Benjamin Franklin was talking about people with mental illness. Of course, he calls it something else, but people with mental illness wandering around the, the Pennsylvania colony with no place to go. And that was why he proposed building what became the first psychiatric unit in the country. But Over the last 40 years, as mass incarceration has developed in this country, we see that more and more people with mental illness have ended up locked up in our jails and prisons. And at the same time, we've really moved away from the use of of psychiatric hospitals and asylums, which has, of course, reduced the number of people who end up in the hospital for mental illness or who end up in the hospital with mental illness for longer than very brief stretches. Um, That number has, has gone down. You'll remember that at the height of institutionalization, which was around 1950, there were about a half million people who were living in institutions, which which sounds like a lot of people. It is a lot of people. But even then, the vast majority of people with mental illness were living in the community, um, whether or not they were getting treatment, they were living in the community. So when 
the institutions started to get shut down. This happened in the 50s, 60s, continues today, but we're really pretty getting pretty close to that zero mark at this point. Yes, there were people. Yes, people were released out of the institutions. And yes, some of them did end up in the criminal justice system. But by best estimates, it was it was a very small increase in the population of of incarcerated people with mental illness that resulted from institutionalization. In the 50s and 60s, the United States made a pretty deliberate move away from state institutions. State asylums were expensive. Like state prisons are today, state mental institutions were overcrowded and underfunded, and they could not provide proper mental health treatment. They became notorious for poor living conditions and patient abuse. When left untreated, individuals with severe mental illness can unfortunately end up living on the streets. They are often picked up on minor charges, drug possession, or other petty misdemeanors. Charges that shouldn't be met with hefty jail sentences, but all too often, these individuals get caught up in the criminal justice system. This is Aisha Delaney Broomsey. She's part of the Stepping Up Initiative. So estimates really vary, but it's been found that between 31% of women and 16% of men in jail have a serious mental health condition, and that's compared to about 5% of people who are not incarcerated. So it's a huge overrepresentation of people with serious mental illness in the justice system. And that's just in jail. We know that it's not just that they're overrepresented. We know that they also are more entangled in the system. They're likely to stay longer in jail than their peers. They're less likely to be let out on bail or on community-based supervision pre-trial. And they're more likely to have their probation and parole revoked and return to jail and prison compared to people without mental health conditions. There is a, a significant number of people with serious mental illness in jails, but also that once in, it becomes very difficult for people. But I think it's helpful to start with the understanding that incarceration rates really began to grow to unprecedented levels in the 1970s. And that happened across the board, both for people with mental health conditions and for people without. And the reasons for that increase are really complex. But we know that some of what drove those increasing rates are things like mandatory minimum sentences, three strikes and your outlaws, increased enforcement for drug charges and increased punishment for drug charges. And that last piece, that piece about increased enforcement for drug charges, is particularly relevant to the question of how we came to where we are now with the over-incarceration of people with mental health conditions. Once someone gets caught up in the criminal justice system, anyone, it's difficult to get out of it. But it is especially difficult for individuals suffering from mental illnesses. When researching her book, Alyssa Roth visited the Los Angeles County Jail. It has one of the biggest mental health units in the country. We see that people in general get caught up in the system. And once you've been caught in the system, it's very hard to to not get caught up over and over again. But for people with mental illness, particularly those who are being picked up on the low-level kind of quality of life offenses, it's really a repeat cycle. So the the person might get picked up for, let's say, disorderly conduct, which as you know is is 
really broadly defined and and somebody with mental illness who's dealing with say psychosis or mania can very easily be be picked up on on disorderly conduct because it could be you know screaming at somebody who's not there or just screaming or any number of things the Los Angeles County Jail has thousands of people who are held in separate mental health units, so separate from the rest of the jail population. These are people who are put into single cells because it's been determined that they're too sick to safely live with another person in their cell. And in many cases, these people are very clearly very, very sick. So I walked around with a corrections officer in, in the LA County Jail who was trying to get people to come out of their their cells. We encountered a man who you couldn't even see. He was wrapped in a blanket on his bed. And so you saw just this this pile of blankets. But he had smeared the the walls of his cell with feces. Almost and, and this wasn't, you know, somebody who had who hadn't made it to the toilet. This was a very clear intentional act. It's worth noting that when I've talked to psychiatrists who work in the civilian world, they almost never see that kind of behavior. Whereas when you talk to psychiatrists and corrections officers and other people who work in jails and prisons, it's something that they see very, very often. There was another person I saw in the LA County Jail who officers brought out said, you want to see something? This guy just tore a piece out of his arm and they they brought a, a man out. He was on his way to the to the hospital unit and had had literally ripped a, a square piece out of his his flesh with his own hands. As you may know, suicide is the leading cause of death in jails and one of the leading causes in prison. And there are a number of reasons for that, but certainly the fact that we have large numbers of people with mental illness in jail and prison contributes to that. I think that the, in some circumstances at least, the conditions that people with mental illness are already dealing with really exacerbate the, the suicide problem. So there's a young man whose, whose case I looked at in Alabama, for example, who had a long history of self-harm, of trying to hurt himself, but he was also being held in absolutely horrific conditions. He was being held in solitary confinement with effectively no mental health care at all. He had no meaningful activity, was having trouble getting visits from his father. He would get punished when he tried to hurt himself. He would be punished by being denied visits with his his father and his brother. And he ended up killing himself in prison. It was and and you see this often where the, the you know if if the person were being cared for in a hospital the the ways that they would be taken care of and the even just the environment that they would be taken care of in would contribute to their getting better rather than than getting worse mm. 
Judge Steve Leifman of the 11th Judicial Circuit of Miami, Florida, started to recognize this problem in his courtroom. He decided to do something about it. Judge Leifman created the 11th Judicial Circuit Criminal Health Project in 2000. It's a program that helps people with mental illnesses who have committed low-level offenses take part in community-based programs rather than be incarcerated. They're screened right away. If there's an indication of a serious mental illness, they're seen by a psychiatrist usually that day. And if they meet criteria for involuntary commitment on a misdemeanor, instead of ordering all these very expensive competency evaluations, so we just toss them back to the street, what we do is within three days of the arrest, we actually have them physically transported to one of our locked crisis stabilization units. And all this happens usually within three days of an arrest on the misdemeanor. We reset the case for about two weeks, which is what they really need to begin to stabilize. And then as they're stabilizing, we send a representative from our program. I have an amazing staff of about 25 people now. And they're all trained in motivational techniques. And they talk to the individual like a real person. And then they say, look, you know, we want to help you. We don't want to keep you in jail. We want to help you get into recovery. And if you agree to go into our program, which is voluntary, we're not going to rebook you. We're going to take you. We're going to pick you back up. And the Department of Corrections picks them back up. And instead of taking them back to jail, takes them directly to the courtroom. And usually, not in all cases, but in almost all of the cases, if they successfully complete all the terms and conditions, um, the charges get dropped, and we monitor them. And even once their charges are dropped, we will continue to monitor them for up to a year. We keep data on every single mental health call that my two largest agencies out of the 36, which would be the city of Miami and Miami-Dade County, make. And over the last eight years, combine those Two departments handled, I think it was 92,427,000 mental health calls. And out of those 92,427,000 calls, they only made 152 arrests. Our jail audit dropped from about 7,300 to about 4,000. It enabled us to close one of our three main jails at an actual savings of $12 million a year. It's been closed now six years, so that's like $72 million in real savings to the county. Something else we discovered that we had not anticipated, and it, and it makes so much sense when you think about it. There's so many people that have these very serious illnesses that end up in the criminal justice system. By the time they get arrested, they have clinical depression on top of their serious mental illness. They just have given up. They don't care anymore. And then when they get to the courtroom, one of our eight peer specialists are waiting for them. Our peers are people with lived experiences with mental illnesses. Four of them are graduates of our program. And they're waiting in court with food, with clothes, with their medication. And the peers play a huge part. This is Walter. He works as a peer specialist. He is also a veteran, and he suffers from mental illness. I'm a retired United States Army. Uh, 20 years active duty. Uh, retired in 2005. Got diagnosed with PTSD. Been living with that. And started back working, helping people out that have the same problems that I have with my mental illness. I constantly work on myself because that that's the example. Because you don't want them to go through it. Uh, as I've been looking at it, we treat the illness. We treat the illness. And, and the illness is not a death sentence for them. 
is exactly how I wanted it to be a death sentence for me. I don't want it to be a death sentence for them. And what it is is, is when we get them in there, and I see them there, and and you look at what's going on with them, you want to help them as much as possible to be normal. You know, I, I actually teach that. You know, who says about normal? And I teach them to be their normal, and their normal's not in jail. It's not uh, uh, letting the mental illness get to you. It's controlling what it is and, and living your life. It gives me great satisfaction to see one of them graduate our program and do different things in their life. You know, that is a big thing for me when I when I see that because somebody helped them. And, you know, I know it could be me or, or one of the other peers or, or whoever it is, but it's helped them, but they mostly help themselves. And then when I'm seeing them take control of their life, they're the ones no longer coming back through the jail system itself. You use the word death sentence. Why did you use that phrase? Because I wanted to die. I, I, wa- I wanted to die and uh, concerning about what was going on with me. And all of a sudden, you got a mental illness and people look at you some way and you want to escape. And sometimes we'll look at that and we'll just want to die with it. I know I did. You know, I say, well, this is going on me, this, this, and that, and this is happening. Then if, if I die, I ain't got to worry about it. And, you know, and a lot of people will look at that. Okay, you're not going to get a job. You're not going to get this. So all you can do is just take your medication and just sit around and just depend on people. No. That's, that's, that's not how life it goes on. You can use what you have and be successful in your life. So you're going to get rid of that death sentence on you. And, and I had to do the same thing. This is Leah Reed. She is also a peer specialist. So um, I see my work as working with the most vulnerable people in our justice system, which is people with mental illness. And it's just a lot of supporting them and giving them hope that, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, that as someone who also suffers from mental illness, that you can be a productive member of society. You don't have to rely on illegal substances or hurting yourself or committing crimes to get through life to recovery. And that's pretty much what I do. I also do some clerical stuff for my team because I mean we support I support my clients and I also support the team that I work with that um, helps make the program happen you know the problems that my clients are having I have them too like taking your medication every day that um, that can be a struggle for me even as a semi well person so while I'm telling these people you know you need to take your medication every day it makes me look at myself and I have to practice what I preach. If I'm telling my clients that they need to have hope, that things get better, you just have to stick through it, then, you know, I need to um, do it myself. And it, it gives me motivation to keep going every day, just knowing that I'm helping people and I'm going through some of the same struggles as them. So maybe that'll help me forge a better connection with them so that they don't feel like they're alone. A lot of things need to happen to keep individuals with severe mental illnesses out of jail. But it starts with tackling the stigma about mental health. I talk to all of our guests about this. I know it's just 
one thing it is that I appreciate the awareness that we're now giving to mental ill to mental illness. I, I appreciate the time that people are starting saying is that we are helping our people out because we are the ones that need help there. I appreciate that uh, someone is uh, actually coming, talking to people and getting that word out there for people to understand and maybe can hear our stories and realize that they have people that are having the same problem we have and that maybe they can get them help because help help is there. Help, help is there, but we just have to get that word out more. And having these podcasts and having people come down and talk to us, that is showing that, that there are some people, there are people in this world that truly want to help the mental illness. And I appreciate that and I love that what's happening because it puts me more out there to to help my fellow man. It's not something that you can see, it's not like someone missing, you know, the leg or maybe someone who has cancer. And you you know, sometimes you can see they're going through chemotherapy. It's a very um, invisible illness that a lot of people don't believe in and I wanna really dispel that notion that it's not real it's very real there's a lot of people that suffer from it the family members probably suffer from it and it's important to you know have empathy and sympathy for these people because it's like any other illness it just needs to be treated this is aisha jail does not change a person's life for the better if what we're asking of jail is to make sure that someone doesn't return to jail again we're asking too much of jail If you're going to incarcerate someone, you have to ask yourself, what are you looking for out of that incarceration? And I think that's what communities are doing now. They're saying, this level of incarceration has not made us safer. It has not made individuals more healthy. It has not helped their families and it has not helped our communities. Since being in jail, Justin now works as a peer specialist in the 11th Circuit Program, and he's a good friend of Judge Steve Leifman. A lot of our laws are outdated, and there's so much stigma around mental health and drugs is that a lot of people think it's an issue of willpower or of better judgment. But the truth is, is that anybody can suffer from a serious mental health issue. But the people we're seeing incarcerated and over-incarcerated are also people of poverty as well. Because if you see somebody's family that has money for a private attorney and to bail somebody out, they may have access to better opportunities than somebody that does not. It's been criminalized, but now so many people are suffering, they want to decriminalize it. But the problem is, The jails are filled up because people are either too poor or too sick to bail out or don't know the system. People are living week to week or month to month, and then they get arrested for a small crime due to their addiction or mental health. They're put so far back. It puts a strain on their families. You know, if they have kids at home or if they had jobs, they lost those jobs now, even if they've been in jail a week. And they don't criminalize it, but there's no resources. There's no other prevention in place. There's so much stigma in general of how to get help and accessing help, good community treatment, that all these people slip through the cracks and they end up incarcerated. And that's why we do a lot of things with our CIT officers here in Miami. We train them. You know, I've had the privilege of training over 2,500 of them with our coordinator to, if they spot the signs of somebody with serious mental health issue, they can get them to the hospital instead of jail. Lastly, this is Judge Leifman. There's something wrong with a society that's willing to spend that kind of money to 
incarcerate people with illnesses and to treat them because for a fraction of that amount of money, we could rebuild the entire community mental health system in Florida and provide access to everyone that needed it at a really high quality. And it just doesn't happen because they're so worried about incarcerating and not treating. And so we have to try to change that mindset. And so it's just absurd and, and cruel what we've done. And I really think that if people step back a little bit and looked at this larger picture with these better outcomes, they'd be more likely to, to do the kind of work we're doing here. But I'm optimistic. Thanks for listening to The Pursuit. If you like The Pursuit, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Pursuit is a project of Libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute. If you'd like to learn more about Libertarianism, visit us on the web at Libertarianism.org. As a podcast producer, I'm occasionally pitched some pretty crazy ideas. So it's without further ado that I introduce Libertarianism.org's new podcast, Pop and Lock. That's pop, the letter N, and lock, like the philosopher John Locke. If you haven't listened to it yet, you can check it out on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for a new episode on the first Wednesday of every month.